When we first moved into our home in the lettered streets uh, several years ago now, one of the things that attracted Corey and I to this old piece of this old house, this old property, was it had a bunch of mature fruit trees on it. In fact, when the realtor brought us over on the upstairs balcony, there, the tree was so tall you could reach out and grab this delicious apple. I think it was in uh, early October, and it was just an added little bonus. You, I didn't think that there would be that many cool fruit trees in an old neighborhood in a little lot like we live on. And all in all, we have two apple trees, a cherry tree, and this kind of golden plum tree. And a mystery tree, like, at least that's what we thought when we first moved in. This mystery tree looked healthy, but after our first full year in the house, it didn't produce any kind of fruit. It was overgrown, and so I pruned it way back, hoping that next year it would produce something for us. Well, that year, that after I pruned the tree, I'm walking around our neighborhood, and two, three blocks down, actually, on Kearney Street, where we live, there is a tree that looked to me exactly like the one in our yard, the mystery tree. It had the same type of bark, and to my uneducated eye, it looked like the same type of leaf, and this tree was full of delicious-looking plums, plum-colored plums, not golden plums like our other plum tree. So I got in the habit of telling people that we had a plum tree in our backyard. I looked into how to care for plum trees, and I just knew that the right nurturing and all of that involved, this tree was going to produce plums just like that tree I enviously walked by every other day when I took the kids to school. All right, well, finally, at the end of summer, I am tying our clothesline to this tree after it had gotten loose when the kids was hanging on it, and I look up into the mystery plum tree, and what do I see hanging there? but a solitary pear. Now, I had believed this thing was a plum tree. I told everybody it was a plum tree. I cared for this tree as though it were a plum tree, and I expected plums from my plum tree. But in the end, what I believed in my heart about this tree did not matter. In reality, I have a plum tree in my backyard, or a pear tree in my backyard. See, I'm convincing myself. The fruit never lies. Plum trees don't produce pears. The popular thought in the days leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection was that the Messiah, that is, God's appointed deliverer, would come and rescue Israel from her political oppressors. They expected the Messiah to be a warrior and a king who would get the nation of Israel faithfully following Torah or the law of God. Instead, Matthew's gospel has been telling us that the Messiah was actually Jesus, and Jesus wasn't any kind of warrior, at least not in the traditional sense. If anything, he was kind of a warrior of peace. He loved people into the kingdom of heaven. He didn't beat them over the head to get into the kingdom of heaven. He stood up against evil, absolutely, but he did it with using words of authority. So when he saw a demon-possessed person, he just said, come out. And this demon, this power of evil, would simply come out of the man or woman. And Jesus wasn't the kind of king who was pampered by an entourage of slaves and attendants. He was the kind of king who served and ultimately would die for the sins of the world. On Palm Sunday, we remember that while Israel were looking for what they expected the Messiah to look like, the actual Messiah, Jesus, rode into town on a donkey and was rejected by them. It would kind of be like me expecting plums from that tree I was talking about earlier. And upon seeing that solitary pear, I pick the pear, I look around, I put it in the compost bin, and then I still wait for plums. Jesus saw that many of the people he came to save were going to die because they rejected him. So he went to great lengths to convince them 
to teach them. He warned his disciples not to put their faith in the temple or in political revolutions. He told stories called parables that warned people that God was coming to judge and that in order to be rescued, people needed to be putting their faith in Jesus, God's authorized agent. This evening, we look at the final teaching Jesus gives before the story of his passion and his death and resurrection. We find it in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, and I want to invite you to stand with me as we read that passage now. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you sick or hungry and feed you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, To the extent that you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for you, uh, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Lord, uh, we pray as always that by the power of your spirit, you would open up your word to us, that this time of submitting ourselves to, to your word would be not an academic assignment, but one that enlightens our minds, yes, but transforms our hearts most of all. Teach us unto change tonight. Amen. You may be seated. We've had several weeks in a row now of these types of passages uh, leading up to the Passion Week uh, where, let's face it, you and I carry quite a bit of history into this passage. Um, This is one of the most quoted texts of the New Testament for social justice. It's often preached as a way to motivate the church when done well or coerce the church when done poorly into serving and caring for the poor and the marginalized. The passage actually doesn't begin with a call to visit the sick or the prisoner or to feed the hungry. Before we jump into our assumed application for this text, let's read the text on its own terms. Now, just before this passage, we have the parable of the talents, which we looked at last week. In that parable, Jesus is warning Israel that Yahweh, God, has returned. He's come to settle accounts. 
Those who receive Jesus, who trust him, who accept him as king and Messiah, will enter into the joy of their master. But those who squander their chance will be judged. The parable, like the parable of the ten maidens before it, is a warning to wake up. The day of the Lord is upon you. How will you respond? Now, with that in mind, let's go to our passage tonight. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, what's the first word in that sentence? It's but. And we, we don't start sentences with conjunctions like that unless we're referencing the thing before. So, we know that somehow the text tonight is linked to the one that comes before it. And once again, our guiding context is that Jesus is teaching on God's visitation in the person of Jesus. He's saying the time has come. God is back. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, let's, call a gla- a ga- let's play a game we like to play at small group in my house called, Where Have I Heard That Before? Come on! All right, no, let's not do that. All right, where have we heard the term son of man before? Just shout it out. Where have we seen that? Isaiah, okay, I'm, probably. Daniel, yes, for sure. Daniel, anywhere else that we've seen son of man before? Revelation, okay. So all in, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus self-refers, he, 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 one of the titles he uses for himself is Son of Man. So that's the Gospels. If we go backwards in time, we know Daniel 7 has a significant portion where there's Son of Man language. We'll get to that in a minute. And then if we telescope into the future from the Gospels, into Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 7, we also see stuff about a Son of Man. Okay. Now what about sheep and goats? Have we seen that before in, in, the, in the Scriptures? Think of that. This would be, you get total extra credit if you get this one. Zechariah. Zechariah 10 has a chapter about sheep and goats being separated, and so does Ezekiel 34, 17, and I promise we'll come back to that. But what I'm trying to do is show you here that Jesus isn't just pulling out these metaphors out of thin air, that he's speaking to an audience who is steeped in the Old Testament who know these references, son of man, who know sheep and goats, okay? So we're going to get to this stuff in a minute. Now, what I'm going to do, and and elementary and up, kindergarten and up, I know that you're here and that um, you might want something to do. So I need six volunteers. My promise to you is you don't have to say anything. You might have to make some noises, okay? So let's have Zoe and Ben, and we'll get Torin, and we'll get Ruth. That's four. And let's have Emma. And Sophia and Stella, you want to be one? All right, you guys, because I don't want to, yeah, come on out. You guys can be one. Okay. Now, raise your hand if you want to be God. Oh, I think, I think, Tor, I think Tor was first. So, Tor, what we're going to do, what I'd love for you to do, Torin, is sit in that pew right there. Okay, and just sit right there. And then, who would like to be the son of man? Zoe, I think your hand is up first. So, Zoe, what I want you to do is sit in the middle of this aisle, crisscross applesauce. Got that? All right, it's a kindergarten thing to do. All right, now we have Sophia and Stella are one. You guys can, I know, I've got a job for you. Okay, now I want all four of you, all, all four of you to stand right over here. This is like 
crazy, windy, oceany chaos. And here's, what, here's the order. Let's have uh, Ruth first, and then let's have Emma, and then Ben, right here. In the first year, I am in Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. Visions in his mind and he lay on his, when he lay on his bed and he wrote them, them down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking into my vision in the night and behold, the four winds of heaven make wind sounds. Okay, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Elizabeth can pull off a build-a-pageant. I can pull off an apocalyptic build-a-apocalyptic dreamscape. Okay, so we've got four winds going over here, and uh, and this great sea was being stirred up. Do some waves or something like that. There's this crazy chaosness right here going on, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea. The first one looked like a lion and had eagle's wings. Can you do like a lion? something oh my not me not me i'm just the narrator i'm just the narrator the first was like a lion had wings like an eagle i kept looking until its wings were plucked put your wings down and it was lifted up from the ground i'm not going to do that and made to stand on two feet like a man and had a human mind and it's just a bizarre thing but you make kind of like lion you're a monster okay all right all right the second one was resembling a bear oh my goodness whoa again not me in fact, here's a good point. You in the pews right now, and Jonathan standing, you guys are Israel, okay? And these nations, these, these beasts represent nations that are oppressing you, okay? So be a bear to them, not me, okay? All right, so we've got one that's like a lion that had the eagle wings, and we have one that's like a bear. Uh, and then you heard these, these words, um, arise and devour much meat, that's creepy. Yeah, just, just, I know, you're veg- okay, much fruit, pretend they're fruit. I know you like fruit. Okay. And yeah, okay, so then we keep going here. After I kept looking and behold, another one, dude, you look like a leopard. Can you do some leopard? Some creep. Yeah, very, it, what, oh, you can switch. I don't care. Just do something menacing because you're oppressing these people, all right? All right, I, I kept looking into the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast came out, and a scary two-headed beast here. It was dreadful and terrifying. Be dreadful and terrifying, okay? <laughs> it was extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. That's creepy. Yeah. And um, it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the rest, Okay. Different than all the beasts before, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another little horn came up among them. And you can be the little horn, Stell. And um, and all the ten horns were pulled up by their roots. But behold, this little horn possessed eyes like a person and a mouth uttering great boasts, like like na 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 boo boo. We oppress you. Okay. So boasting that this nation of God, the so-called 
called people of God. Who is this God that lets their people get crushed by, by this nation and this nation and this nation? And now this is the ultimate nation with the iron teeth oppressing. So you guys are oppressed. Let's put your hands in bondage like this. Okay, thank you very much. Now, as I kept, I kept looking until, let's have the beasts part. Let's put a couple of you on that side and a couple of you on that side. I, I kept looking until thrones, plural, were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's another word for Yahweh. All right. And his vesture was like white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And his, his throne was ablaze with fire. River of fire was coming out. And thousands and thousands were attending him. You've got all these whatever's singing your praises, my man. Um, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him in the court where he sat, and the books were opened. This is the book of accounts, the book of life, the book of judgment. Then I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words of the little horn uh, was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain. You guys have to lay, why don't you guys lay down right here? Okay, yeah. That beast was slain. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed. It's like in that river of fire, it's all burned up. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. So you guys go like this now. You are shackled up and you guys are free. Yay! Dominion was taken up. Now I want everybody to point at Zoe because this is the Son of Man. And what the Son of Man represents is collective Israel. The Son of Man represents the fulfillment of everything you were created to be. You were created to be blessed, to be a blessing to the world, so that other nations would want to come and know Yahweh, your God, because you were so blessed. And you thought that that promise was taken away because these nations had been oppressing you, but now Daniel is saying that one like a Son of Man is going to come and be everything you want to be she, he is going to represent you. And one like the Son of Man came up. Come on up. And she's riding on a cloud. Which direction? Up. Okay. I kept looking into the night visions. Behold, on the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he sat and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and people of every language might serve him and dominion his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and if we keep going in daniel 7 the son of man is seated at the right hand of the ancient of days of the father okay when we hear son of man when Jesus calls himself Son of Man, is it any mistake that he was arrested and tried for what cause? Blasphemy. Okay. So this is a serious thing when Jesus is calling himself Son of Man. By the way, in Acts chapter 1, what happens to Jesus? He goes up in a cloud and is seated on the right hand of the Father. That is what we celebrate on Ascension Sunday, by the way. Let's give these uh, beasts and, and, uh, a very big hand. Thank you, thank you. The common interpretation of Daniel 7 in the first century was that Israel would be exalted and vindicated before her enemies. So far, so good. The four beasts 
represent the evil empires of, of, of the world that had thought that they had defeated God's enemies, but in the end, the Son of Man representing all of Israel would be shown victorious. There'd be a sorting of the nations, and here's where it gets a little fuzzy. The Israelites, mostly uh, of Jesus' time when he was walking the earth in the flesh, thought that they would be the sheep, Israel, and that the nations would be like goats, that they would be judged and sorted. The vast majority of Jesus' audience would assume, right, that, that, that they would be chosen, that they would be set apart, and that the nations would be cast away. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, and on and on it goes. And the righteous will answer, When did we see you in any of these situations and help you? And the king will reply, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. How do we interpret that? Who are these people who are sick and thirsty and hungry and strangers and prisoners and on and on? Does this simply mean that anyone who helps a person on this list, anyone who helps a person having a really hard time will inherit the kingdom of heaven? Is that what this is saying? That in the end, after nearly the entire book of Matthew and the story of God coming as a baby to save the world, all we have to do to be part of God's kingdom is to help other people? Why do we need Jesus? Why does he teach so many parables about trusting exclusively in him as the avenue to the kingdom? Why does he say that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only path to the Father, if it were just serving people that got you into the kingdom of heaven? And why would Jesus submit to crucifixion if all we need to do is start a meal ministry or a prison ministry or a boarding house? Why? Exactly. It doesn't make any logical sense. So what is Jesus saying in this teaching? To understand this passage, we have to look at the line, truly I say to you to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of these you did it to me. Who are these brothers of mine that Jesus is referring to? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. We've heard this kind of language before, and not even in the Old Testament. We've heard this language before in Matthew's Gospel, out of the mouth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. When Jesus sends his disciples out to proclaim the Gospel, he says, anyone who welcomes you, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who's my disciple, truly I tell to you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. And in Matthew 12, Jesus replied to him, Who is my mother and my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. The brothers of Jesus, then, in this teaching, are his disciples, the new people of God. And here's the punchline to this teaching. Here's why Jesus told it in this context. While most of Israel was expecting that they would inherit the kingdom of heaven and that the nations would be judged, Jesus says, not so fast. And although this flew in the face of popular Jewish thought in the first century, it was right in line with biblical thought. In chapter 10 of the prophet Zechariah, we hear the word of God declaring that the people of God are his sheep 
and the leaders of his people were being corrupt. They were not caring well for the sheep. He says, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted because there is no shepherd. And then he says, my anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats, for the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah. So in this passage, God is talking about Israel. He's saying the common people are the sheep, and the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, the prophets, the priests, they are the shepherds of Israel. And because they are mistreating, uh, they're abdicating their position, they are not treating the people well within the family of God, these leaders will be considered like goats, and the people will be the sheep. Ezekiel 34 also speaks about a separation between Israel and the pagan nations. Uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 34 talks about a separation, but not between Israel and the pagan nations. It talks about a separation within Israel between sheep and goats. That is, between faithful, uh, his faithful people and the corrupt leadership. Okay, now here's where the payoff comes. What Jesus is saying is that there's a new people of God, and that it consists of everyone who puts their faith in him. Not just ethnic Israel, but anyone in the world who places their faith in Jesus. So the truth is that Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, anyone who cares for my brothers, anyone who meets the needs of my disciples when they are in need, will be part of the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying then is anyone can get into the kingdom, and shockingly, anyone can be excluded, even Israelites, if they fail to place their faith in Jesus. Now, wait a minute, you might be thinking. Isn't that just another way of reworking works righteousness? So you're saying that if any old Joe Blow off the street um, whether they've even heard of Jesus in the first place, just treats one of Jesus' disciples well, that they're in the kingdom of heaven without Jesus? No. Here's, here's someone that helps us out. New Testament scholar Craig Keener writes, Receiving Jesus' representatives with even a cold cup of water probably refers to accepting them into one's home. And when we accept someone into one's home in the first century, what have I said over and over again? When you share a meal with someone... You're saying you're in, you're part, I accept you, I accept the things about you, I accept your God, I accept the, uh, what you're teaching. And that's why Jesus said when, you know, you go around and you're evangelizing, if people don't receive you into their home, it means they're not buying what you're selling. It means they're not believing you about me, so shake the dust off your feet. What we're dealing with then is not people simply treating Christians well, but receiving the Christ of Christians, being a blessing to the man or woman of Jesus because of Jesus. Uh, That's an amazing reality. Um, Let me illustrate with scripture. We know from Acts chapter 9 that Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, was walking on the Damascus Road on the way to persecute the church. And on that road, we all know the story, he has an encounter with with the risen Jesus. And Jesus says something to Saul that is earth-shattering. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting the church or my disciples? He says, why are you persecuting me? And what we see there is that when Saul is persecuting the church, 
he's persecuting Jesus. Jesus is so intimately tied with his disciples that when one of his disciples is wronged, Jesus is wronged. And the opposite is also true. Jesus so identifies with his church that to serve even the lowliest of his disciples is to serve Jesus. Maybe even especially the lowest of his disciples. Even famous and powerful Christians get treated well by the world. People want to be around powerful people because they could benefit from it somewhere down the road. But to serve the lowliest of disciples because they belong to Jesus is true evidence that one loved Jesus. See, I think followers of Jesus, I think you and I will be surprised that we were serving Jesus because it never occurred to us that changing the diaper of a baby down in the nursery like someone might be doing right now is serving Jesus, right? It may never occur to you, Jim Donef, when you were cooking the meal that we're going to eat together tonight, that you were doing that directly to Jesus. It may not have occurred to you that when you sent that, that card that simply said, I'm thinking and praying for you to the person who lost a loved one in this past year, you wrote that card to Jesus. Think of some of these lowly Christians in the book of Acts. Peter was in prison, and later his jailer invited him into his home, and the whole family of that jailer was converted. When Paul was a fugitive, people took him in. When Paul was in prison, he mentions visitors by name who especially blessed him. Uh, Onesimus, the runaway slave of Philemon, becomes a disciple of Jesus through his ministry to Paul in prison. See, we think of Paul as a great man, and he was, but if Paul were here today and he went around the world and saw all these statues of himself, I bet he would want to knock them over. Because Paul's greatness comes from Paul's weakness, his dependence on Jesus. The early Christian converts were sometimes embarrassed by Paul. We've seen some of this uh, in the Corinthian letters. Serving Paul was serving the lowly. The only reason you would do that is to serve Jesus. And that's the point of this passage. Salvation does not come from saying the right words or claiming all the right allegiances. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The will of my Father is to obey the Son. Right? That's the will of the Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not perform many miracles and, and prophecy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here's a breath of fresh air. Jesus does not call you and I to do great things. He doesn't say those who perform miracles will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, those who serve the least of these, my brothers, will enter the kingdom of heaven. See, part of faith in Jesus is trusting him to do the big things. It's trusting him to do the miraculous things. See, it's faith that believes Jesus is the son of the living God, not miracles and not big things. It's faith that believes he died on the cross for my sin and for your sin. It's faith that believes he rose and reigns and will return in glory. And it's faith that has to be more than words. We don't truly love Jesus 
if we don't feel compassion, if we don't love the church, the person sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you would be in that category. The person from the other church who has a little different theology than you do would fit in that category. We can recite scripture and creeds and say all the right things and sing all the right songs, but if we don't bear the fruit of faith, then what is our faith really in? Who is our faith really in? I think it's just in us doing just enough, which is never enough. Instead, Jesus gives us this teaching to say, I've done more than enough for you, so then rest in me and trust in me and be free to express your love and trust by serving those who represent me. Now, I, I shouldn't have to say this because if you've heard me preach any other time, you, know, you already know this, but hear me loud and clear. Just because this passage in historical context, is aimed at receiving Jesus through receiving his disciples, that doesn't mean that we're off the hook for serving every other living, breathing man, woman, and child in the world. Okay? Genesis 1 is all we need for that. Because every single person, whether they're a disciple of Jesus's or not, is made in the image of God. And they deserve our respect. And all kinds of other places in the Bible call us to serve and to love, and that's why we do all the things we do at Lettered Streets and are, you know, are hungry to do more. Okay? But this passage is about more than service. This passage is about faith. Is it about the faith we proclaim, bearing fruit in service to our brothers and sisters? The world, see, I think the point is the world should look at the church and say, oh, how they love one another how they care for one another, how they are humble toward one another rather than claiming their rights, how they listen to one another rather than go on rants on Facebook and Twitter about how the other one's theology is wrong. Look at how they reconcile their differences rather than holding grudges against one another. I think that, that is, is striking at the heart of this thing. And once again, if you're like me and you look in the theological, spiritual mirror and you take to heart Jesus, you know, I, I, look, at, I look at this stuff and I say, I'm failing. I get some of it right, I'm growing, but I still fail more often than not. And once again then, facing our failure, we take heart in Jesus' statement, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are those who have it together. Blessed are those who do all this stuff right. But blessed are you when you look in that mirror and you realize, I've got a long way to go. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me and on us. Let's pray. King Jesus, I pray for the fruit of repentance in me and in my brothers and sisters here. I thank you for your ministry, Holy Spirit, of breathing new life into us as we abide in Jesus, of bearing fruit in us, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control 
I thank you that there is no law above those things. Lord, we confess to you our gross shortcomings in these areas of truly, truly loving one another well. We hear your call. And we pray, Lord, that the faith we proclaim in our minds and with our mouths and with our creeds, uh, Lord, that our hearts would catch up to those proclamations. Transform our hearts, Lord Jesus, and bear fruit of repentance in us, we pray.